name's Tamar Garb, and I'm going to hopefully facilitate this discussion. I direct the Institute of Advanced Studies here at UCL, and I'm also um, in the Art History Department, and have long been thinking about questions of the aesthetics of waste. So it's really wonderful this evening to have with me a group of really interesting artists and curators to talk um, about the whole idea of, of, of waste and repurposing and how we might think about detritus and that which we throw away within the context of artistic practice um, now. Of course, this idea that um, materials can be harnessed from life and particularly from the stuff of life that may not anymore seem to have value in relation to the instrumentalized lives that we lead is something that's been around in 20th century aesthetics uh, from the early part of that century. You think of Cubist collage, etc. you think about the moment at which um, things started to become taken from the world and repurposed in a way uh, in the context of art, recontextualized, therefore revalorized, made to signify differently. We go right with the way back, I suppose, to um, Still Life with Chair Caning of Picasso's in 1912, to think about stuff like old bits of linoleum and old bits of newspaper and rope that can wrap itself around a picture and stand in for a picture frame. And from that moment, from the play between high and low, you might say, uh, that really that kind of cataclysmic and very radical cubist moment engendered, um, what is appropriate for making art out of became, I think, open to question in all sorts of interesting ways. So coming from it as I do, as an historian of 19th and early 20th century um, uh, art and painting within Europe for a large part of my career, that's obviously one way in which I have thought about these things, but there are many other ways too in terms of the spaces within which art is shown, which of those spaces are designed for showing art, which are ones which seem to be left out or left over or discarded or uh, wasted um, within the other circuits of life, which environments and places hold stuff that other people think should be thrown away and that can be reconfigured and rethought. These are all questions that we in the IAS have been thinking with um, over the last few weeks around the concept of waste. So we're involved in a big interdisciplinary, uh, multifaceted inquiry around waste. Obviously, waste is a huge political issue now uh, for all of us. Um, you don't, you know, day doesn't go by without one going into some environment where you're told not to waste, not to waste anymore, to recycle, to repurpose stuff that's around us. So waste is everywhere, and what we think of wa about waste and the categories through which we conceptualize waste is very um, urgent, I think, in, um, in relation to environmental um, and sustainable sustainability issues that are challenging for all of us. So that's the background to this panel, working very closely with my colleague Albert Brunchat in the IAS and other colleagues, we have junior research fellows working and thinking on waste. We decided that it would be interesting to invite artists of different generations who think differently about their own materiality and their own practices and the spaces and sites in which they situate their work um, in relation to what other people might think of as throwaway culture, um, the, the leftovers, the uh, detritus in a way of industrial and modern life. Um, the artist that came to mind instantly when we started to talk about this was, of course, Phila de Bala. And um, I'm sure Phila de needs no introduction. Many of you will know the incredible inventive way with which she works with materials and the way in which she plays with the appearance of material and indeed what the material actually is. Because what you see is not always what you get. But what you what appears in Phyllida's work, and we're going to talk about this in great detail in a minute, is the appearance of stuff that seems to be useless or having been discarded by um, forms of building and forms of making and high art notions of what is appropriate for sculpture so that she seems to salvage and, uh, and find and repurpose and rework the things that other people might throw away and indeed then to play with them and alter them um, in all sorts of interesting ways and to turn them into new kinds of monumental structures. So um, when we were thinking about this panel, 
we you know thought instantly that it would be really lovely to engage quite closely with Philida's work and that's how we're going to start off tonight those of you um, who know Philida will know that she's also a, a colleague a longtime colleague here at UCL in the Slade School of Fine Art she trained um, at Chelsea and here she's taught across London in different colleges she's been uh, you know involved um, I suppose in recent years in a huge flowering of her career and in the last 10 years in particular has really really um, burst upon the global stage as Britain's um, uh, one of Britain's most important and interesting artists. So thank you, Philida, for agreeing to be with us. And we will, as I say, start off this um, evening's discussion by, um, by talking with Philida in quite a lot of detail about her practice. But then we've also invited um, three artists from different generations who also think quite carefully about waste, but in very, very different ways than the kind of sculptural work um, that Philida is involved with. So we have with us the partnership of Catherine Borowski and Lee Baker, a curator and a sculptor um, who work together. It's a partnership uh, in, in very, very interesting ways. Um, and they're going to talk a little bit about the way they've worked. Some of you might know their project of working with skips and curating um, in skips, a very unlikely environment for thinking about where art might be shown, but something that's absolutely opposite to the um, kinds of questions that we're uh, raising tonight. And then Hilary Powell as well, who works in a very conceptual way with institutions and spaces, rethinking how, uh, how we use urban environments and how we might uh, repurpose them, how we might salvage certain kinds of spaces and create new kinds of meanings um, within them. So I'm going to start the conversation with Philida, and then we're going to ask you to talk in much more detail about your own practices and perhaps also relate your own work to Philida's. And then we're going to open it up to everybody that's here. Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if the person sitting in the corner would just dull the lights there because it would be nice if... Yeah. Wonderful. Is that too dark? Perhaps we could have just a little bit of light, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> no, the other one. <laughs> How's that? Yeah? Can you see the image? Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, <laughs> and we can still see you. Okay, Philida, let's start, let's start with you. And um, if you wouldn't mind talking us through a little bit what a piece like this um, is made of, how you find these materials, whether you think of it in terms of repurposing stuff that otherwise might be discarded, or whether that is not the vocabulary you would use in order to describe what you do in a work like this. This particular work um, <coughs> at the Kunsthaler in Zurich um, was an exhibition on two floors. And the top floor above this one, where you see this work, was being um, completely reconstructed due to a fault in the building. And so I decided to use the two floors, one where it was being reconstructed uh, and the one underneath. And my aim with this exhibition was to keep everything very, I mean, it's a very fanciful um, idea, but um, keep everything very high up, pressing against the ceiling, sort of banging on the ceiling to the space above. All the materials were already in the studio. There was timbers, the upright timbers, or a lot of them were from the Tate exhibition in 2014. A lot of the materials were just materials that I've kept back to reuse. Um, and so, in a way, there was an... For me, there was a way of making, for this particular exhibition, because I like this idea of the temporary spaces and their impact on the work and the exhibition as a whole. Everything was um, very particularly half-finished. <laughs> that was the sort of rules of the game. And um, so it had a very, uh, it, there was a great deal of spontaneity. I didn't really know how I was going to set up the show. Um, I, with my um, main assistant, Adam, and one other assistant, and then the brilliant text there, I, in a way, took on a directorial role of saying, let's begin here. I don't know if there's another Im image of this show. <laughs> I'm not sure. No. Why does that go forward? 
because this is what computers do. Ah, that's a different. That's is that the same? That's a different one. So let's stick with that for a little bit. And yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I was interested in what you said about reusing some of the materials from the Tate show. Yes. So, so you tell us a little bit about that because what happens then is some a work becomes another work. Yes, yes, and it carries a lot of the information on it of the previous work. So you get these numbering signs, arrows. Um, there's an arrow here which says this way up, but it's actually pointing <laughs> down. And that, that I, I think that kind of trace of something else having happened to these materials is a quality that I quite, find quite important in how it enters another work. Um, I, I suppose as an artist who is not good at ideas and not good at subject, I don't, don't have a subject as such. So the process of making is a process of finding a subject. Therefore, bringing into the work things that appear to have meaning but don't have meaning intrigues me. I, I find it fascinating that maybe there's a way of transcending explanation and justification for the work. So, so in, in the, the materials themselves carry the story of their own history. Yes, but it's, it's locked in, you know, I don't think it... Um, and, and for you, that, I mean, that repurposing of material that comes from other work, is there also an ethical imperative there, or do you feel that it is really a material imperative? A material imperative, and, and actually an economic imperative. Yeah. These, um, the, the, the quantities of materials I use are huge, and something I can feel very ashamed and guilty of as we sort of, as the kind of movements around the environment develop, the idea of being a very traditional sculptor like myself, which begins with drawings, goes to small works, and then expands to big works, becomes something where I can feel it's not in the interest of environmental issues. And that becomes actually quite a moral, a moral cloud that's always there as, a, as somebody who loves making and loves making in a way where finding out what something is about is, is part of that journey. Yes. To have this, this sense of sort of in a way guilt but it is, is a very conflicting experience, you know. When, when you experience your sculpture in the spaces that, um, they in, that, that they're situated in, one doesn't imagine that they have grown in that very traditional sculptural way from maquettes and drawings. Oh, right. Mm. Um, mm. But is that always the case? Um, yes, it is. I mean, I made a small version of this in the studio before we came to Zurich because I just needed to explain to Daniel Barman, the, the curator of this, that this is what I was going to be doing. You know, otherwise, I think curators understandably get quite unnerved by an artist like myself who kind of hits the space with 10 tons of concrete or whatever. And material. Yes, yeah, but um, I, think, I think the the reusing rather than <coughs> recycling of materials is a very important part of making the work. Mm. And, um, but I don't think it is ethical. I think it's wanting maybe to carry some kind of trace through. Uh, in a way, the sort of aesthetics of the worn out and the used mm. and the damaged um, does intrigue me. I, I know it can become a very tasteful aesthetic, and that's yeah. that's a problem. But I am in, in you know I am fascinated by that sort of process of a palimpsest of things being held in a particular moment, and and the idea of entropy of something being hold, held in a moment of near demise. 
And so, therefore, I think reusing these materials is mm. also a language, mm. in a way, as much as it being an economic It's interesting, process. though, because when, when one experiences the work, one thinks of the way in which these um, bits have had previous lives and mm. have now been recomposed and re-put together. Mm. But at the same time, there's also quite a lot of imprint, paint mm. and scratching and hammering and putting together mm. that you presumably do afterwards or you, ha you, you don't just take these things ready-made from the earlier work and then mm. reuse them. You're also altering mm. them. Oh, complete. And I'm, I'm and very interested in sort of fakery yes. and artifice and I'm quite open about it. I suppose it, it's about the experience of how we look at things. If I'm looking at that chair there, do I see chair first and foremost, or do I see shiny metal and gray fabric? And I, I enjoy that process of cancel, trying to cancel out that hierarchy of how we see and experience the room through, in a way, very false, fake, marks and and um, painting over and filler over screw heads and things that both kind of distract in some way but also conceal so mm -hmm. there's there is a sort of theatricality going on there I mean it's very striking that it's, I mean I was wondering when I was looking at these earlier today and thinking about them um, to what extent the notion of waste is faked in them Oh. Uh, and, mm. and, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I, I mean mm. that that perhaps there is a metaphorics of waste. There is absolutely a, that that yeah. is deployed here yeah. rather than it actually being a literal. I mean, yes. some of it is literally repurposing yes. or reusing or whatever word yeah. makes mm. sense. But the other is creating, fabricating a, a, a look of salvage mm. of, of, mm. of stuff that has been salvaged mm. and re put together. I think it comes from a love of the paradox of sculpture, that I think sculpture is a very ephemeral, um, despite, you know, its history of weight and mass and monumentality, the encounter with sculpture is one of consistently, constantly losing the experience as you walk through it and walk under it and walk around it. You're, you might have an image but you lose the image as soon as you've walked a few steps to the right or the left. And therefore, I think, in a way, that sense of reenactment of something or playing with things like whether something is genuine or authentic or not but is, here, yeah. is, ties in with something about ephemerality. And here this, this becomes really clear when you look at that Thing that looks like a huge heavy weight on the top and I've noticed mm. this in a lot of your work is that, um, that, that that you look at something that looks so monumental and so heavy and then you realize <laughs> that it, the heaviness is faked it's not a heavy mm. thing necessarily because it can be made out of yes something that looks heavy it, but isn't or did it in that case was it actually heavy? The, no the, the plaster shape yes. on top which is actually made out of sheets of cast plaster which i then folded and i'd kept the sheets of but it's hollow it's got um just rubbish inside it actually oh. you know so it's um the rubbish <laughs> 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 yeah, it's probably very interesting to cut in half. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's got... Invisible waste. Yes. In, in, I mean, I have in the past, in the 80s, made works where I used, again, for economic reasons, as much for, as a sense of fascination, used the bags of domestic rubbish. I would just take them into the studio, tape them up, and they became the work. And mm -hmm. over time, they sort of changed shapes as the contents of the rubbish bags. So even so organic it, waste in there, rotting and yes, smelling. Yes, yes. Well, it didn't actually, because I sort of seal, sealed it. But I think that... But a whole life was going on inside yes, the bag. Yes, I think those works in the 80s, I mean, I've had a very protracted experimental time with with sculpture <laughs> I think it still it still resonates now you know that um, 
yes, the sculptures may look not heavy, but some of them are extremely heavy, and that's been a, a, a growing part of what I do. Perhaps let's look at a few others, and you can tell, talk us a little bit through um, how these ideas of, um, of, of salvage, repurposing, remaking, and fakery work mm. in the way in which you've put them together. I mean, they, see, they are so complex, and the thing about them, some of you, I'm sure, will, will know this. You walk underneath them, you walk through them often. Mm. They're very much, I mean, they're very spatially um, engaging, and, mm. and your whole body somehow you know, has to navigate the space. Mm. And often it feels rather frightening. You think something might fall on you. Mm. It puts you as a viewer into quite a precarious situation. You don't quite know um, how secure mm. it all is. Yes, yeah, and no, I think that's a kind of fascination with the perilous and the dangerous and the, the risk-taking that I think sculpture is. And the adventure for me of being able to go above my height and explore the space above eye level um, is, is something I'm intrigued by. But this particular shape here was, um, I used this lethal, environmentally, totally wrong material called polyurethane foam that fills cavities in buildings for insulation. And um, we often have in the studio cans that only have, you know, have a sort of third left in the bottom of them. So I made this big sack out of canvas and part filled it with paper and cardboard from, again, sort of waste materials, and then squirted all these these half-filled cans that were just going to stand around for a week or so. Mm. And it, it cast this shape, so I've torn the canvas off it. Mm. And that's, that's then the inside of it. So, mm. And that's very light, you know, you can pick... In fact, it kept on falling off its perilous <laughs> thing. But, um, which, but again, I sort of... I know, I know it's not very audience-friendly to say this, but I think the object finding its place, finding its actual right balance, um, which it did in the end after it had a few Falls. tumbles, yes. <laughs> but looking at it here in situ, I mean, it's interesting. It's juxtaposed. Those, are those red beams, uh, what are they made of? The, the, the... That's... Uh, four by six timber, it's timber timber beam that was in the tape. And somewhere on that, it's got a number to register the, the place where it was in the, the tape. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you've got all that polystyrene and masking tape and mm. cardboard and stuff that we associate with mm. wrapping and packaging and industrial, mm. uh, you know, delivery yeah. of goods. Mm. Yes. Um, so so yeah. that whole sense of a kind of industrial uh, building site plus the mm. wrapping and the apparatus that goes around it. I mean, even the mm. timber itself look like those packing cases yes. often, don't they? they look like pallets. Pallets, that's yeah. the word. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so one's thinking of, um, of the stuff that usually accompanies the delivery of goods mm. rather than the goods themselves, mm. all that paraphernalia, which mm. one might think of as waste. Yes, and I tend to keep quite a lot of it, you know, and, yeah. and then cut it up and remake it. But I think it, it, I like your description because it suggests something in transit. Mm. And I, I do enjoy that idea of sculpture needing some kind of movement and the movement is usually human movement around it space. Mm. but also the fact that these things can carry that language of impermanence or something transitory i think that's so it's uh, interesting then that and goes back to what you were saying in the beginning about the materials themselves having embedded within them the stories of their own uh, you know, form of circulation. Mm. So it's not mm. that there's something allegorical or literary or symbolic or, you know, it's it's more that the materials themselves, uh, yeah, are compacted in a way with mm. these different kinds of capacities think, to signify. Yes, I mean, I think it's... 
I'm always trying to escape the simile, oh, it looks like, and maybe hopefully become a metaphor, you know, that they are perilous, they are this, they are that, they are nearly falling down or casually arranged. The simile seems to lead us into all sorts of explanations that then give this very literary narrative to things. Um, yeah. I know it's an, a very natural thing to do, but I, I find it problematic. I mean, I do it, but I find I it... to resist it at yes, the same time. Yes, yeah, and it, it goes with trying to also resist the image in sculpture, to make something too restless. And yet my sculpture is very imageful, so yeah. <laughs> there are these constant push-me-pull-me things in terms of mm. um, trying to make something just be itself, you know, and uh, can not, I, not can, succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> just going to show, show, show some, some um, other examples of this where you have these extraordinary things that you don't know whether they're heavy or light that are balanced on these, you know, amazing structures made up, as you say, mm. of these recycled pieces of wood and wrapping paper, etc. Mm. I mean, this example here, which was the Royal Academy, if I'm not mistaken, uh, oh, the British Pavilion in Venice, yes. exactly. Um, uh, I, here, something strikes me that I thought about as well in the Royal Academy show last year, oh, yeah. which is, I wonder whether you'd say a little bit about how the, um, the affect of your work in terms of the way in which it uses materials that seem to be industrial or cheap or to do with waste or somehow from you know the kind of the, the leftovers of the world mm. is here harnessed into this incredibly permanent institutional structure mm. almost um you know this one with the with the, the, with the british pavilion or the royal academy these mm. buildings come freighted with permanence and history and institutional power Mm. And I wonder if you'd mm. say something about how you feel about the tension between the, those. Mm. Well, the, the British Pavilion is, is problematic. It's quite, quite a small building, but it's in this very imperious position, built at a time when, you know, there was an empire, and it certainly lets you know that from its position between Canada, Germany, and France. And its neoclassical yes. languages exactly, yes, with its pillars yes. and, and uh, you its, know, whole structure. Yeah, I suppose... I don't know, this is a strange thing to say, and please come back at me, attack me. <laughs> but I don't really understand architecture, you know, and I don't understand whether a shed is architecture or a building. And this is architecture. I don't understand where the boundaries are. And that intrigues me. And to me, if you're going to put sculpture or art in some of these buildings, it's how the two, do they have a symbiotic relationship? Or is there a kind of feud between space and the sculpture and the sculpture and the space? Are the always those two protagonists in, well, for me, they're always in contention. And then, of course, there's the third protagonist, which is the audience, you know. So um, I may make the work in the studio in quite a private way, but the minute the work hits these spaces, it becomes, in a way, very, very performative, you know, and the, yeah. the need to perhaps take on these institutions in a way where the whole space is used in some way becomes very important. And often it's, I suppose it's aggressive. I mean, I think I am and do make my work in, in quite an aggressive way. It, I want to set up some kind of, um, yes, yeah, some kind of, relationship between... Encounter. Encounter, yeah. I mean, I was very struck by that. I don't think we've got a slide of the Royal Academy, but some of you will have seen in the niche. You, I mean, you oh, made yeah. that, that, that <laughs> extraordinary thing in the, in the niche, and this is mm. a niche made to you know, hold a neoclassical sculpture, a yeah. figure, a classical ideal, mm. you know, yes. male nude or something. Yes. Yeah. Um, and instead, it, you know, it holds a whole series of planks and 
you know, <laughs> things going out at all angles. And, mm -hmm. and there is this anxiety I found and tension mm -hmm. between the, 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 the salvage aesthetic that you mm -hmm. use and the industrial language that you invoke and the fakery uh, mm. and wit that you deploy when we don't know, you know, here we've got these big bulbous things on these very, very thin um, columns. You don't, mm. you, you can't, you, it's very disorienting. But to me, it sets up a, a very interesting and not always comfortable tension mm. between mm. these quite officious buildings and then this yes, kind of yeah. play. I think there's also this, this kind of notion of the absurdity of the the language of architecture, you yeah. know, and I, I think, yes, I think it's it's, I think these official spaces for me, having spent so long, um, in a way, engaging with non-art spaces of my own, mm. you know, making or my own inquiry into them. To be now at this late stage in life, being given these very official spaces, I can't let go of that need to make the work very alert to its environment. And even as a kind of protest, I always think with graffiti, I'm not, I can never remember what the graffiti is, but I'm intrigued by somebody actually getting up there climbing the building and doing whatever it is. And there's a group of graffiti artists called Ten Foot. I'm sure you've seen it. He or she seems to be all over London. And uh, just the thought of how they get onto that railway bridge. I think there's a, a similar sort of, in a way one could call it kind of childish <laughs> desire to not exactly wreck wreck the building but sort of yeah. take it on yeah. and uh, mm. I'm sure that our discussants are going to have things to say about this because of the kinds of context they work in, work in in relation to it and I'm really intrigued to hear yeah. that um, but we'll just talk a little bit more and then and then go on um, to open it up yeah. so so here you have a kind of faux balcony yes that weighs you know 240 kilograms. Wow. Because it's so it's fake and real both at the same time, which is an, another issue that I'm interested in. I suppose all my acts of making really are related to my early engagement with sculpture, which was through, through clay hmm. and um, wanting materials that will. Um, have a life of their own, which cement and plaster do, and clay does to a certain extent, and that is very malleable. And uh, What is it made of that it's so it's, heavy? It's a steel frame, and then it's cement and ribbons dipped in cement wow. and wrapped round the steel frame. And supported how? By being attached um, to the wall? Through, through the... <laughs> through the wall on the other side, which you can see when you go round the end of it. Because I also like that thing of revealing the whole structure that's mm. making the fake thing <laughs> be there is a, is a huge steel structure mm. that it gets bolted on through the colored panels. Mm. I'm sure that's very clear. <laughs> no, no. I'm going to just just to show people. I mean, these ones interested me as well because of the way in which they then are made to sit like precious objects on plinths. <laughs> so, um, so there's a, there's a kind of paradox that's uh, yeah. that's, that's absolutely mm -hmm. implicit in in them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I suppose just to round it up, because you know, lots of these ideas we'll we'll carry on thinking about together. But I wondered whether you'd say something about ideas as well <laughs> in terms of the way in which they become mm. recycled I mean do you are ideas ever wasted um, is it besides the material processes mm. and thinking about mm. waste in relation to materials as an artist who thinks in materials and you know what what goes on with um, with the ideas that you can't use and don't use and repurpose and how do they come back do they have lives that come back in ways that surprise you, things that you thought you had discarded, mm. things that you thought were useless. Mm. Um, I don't, I, 
as I said earlier, I don't think I'm good at ideas. You know, I don't, with, with this work, for instance, this is all offcuts that um, were in the bin and I just brought them out and I liked the way they'd fallen in the bin. So I just crushed them together with plaster and cement. So it's, and then painted it, kept on painting each layer. Now, the idea in inverted commas of that was about pressing, squeezing, and making something become an object almost against its will. You know, mm. that one minute had been just stuff thrown in a bin, the next minute I'm taking control of that. Mm. And so the idea is about the actions. And I think the actions in themselves are a language. Mm. Pressing and pushing is actually quite mm. a kind of caring kind of action, you know, it's a sort of holding action that's um, not that aggressive, you know. So I think there are these different <coughs> states of actions that very much become the content yeah. of the work. And would you think them through, I don't mean think them through in words, but think them through materially on the page, in sketchbooks, in uh, notes, um, or in a because you said earlier that things have maquettes and things have drawings. Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering also whether you also are the kind of artist who lives with, you know, doodling and writing lists and words mm -hmm. and, you know, these are the. I mean, those are the ideas, aren't they? That artists, in a sense, yes, work have, with. So, um, so, so what? How I was do you looking do that? at a friend's very successful artist. Uh, she was showing me her sketchbooks and they were all in a shelf. They were all exactly the same with dates on them. Wow. And what. Whereas I leave sketchbooks all around the house and always have them with me and they're just a complete shambles, you know. So in no particular order. No particular order, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was using one which had the date 1999 on it and I don't <laughs> know where it had come from. But um, I draw the whole time and I do bigger drawings that... Um, and nothing is wasted? No, but this one, this is almost like a state of drawing, this one here. And I would not have done a preliminary drawing for this. But for something like the Venice show, I did loads of drawings because I needed to be pretty confident about the space, what the process was, yeah. So it happens in various ways. But now I have done some drawings of this one <laughs> afterwards, yeah. Okay, well, um, so much to think about and lots more we could go on, but I'm very, very aware of, we, of the fact that we have um, two very different kinds of practices um, to factor into the discussion. So, Catherine and Lee, I'm going to ask you to... Uh, you have a presentation as we well. Do, yeah. yeah, so we're going to hand you over the computer and perhaps if you want to pick up on some of these ideas and, of course, You're take right. it in whichever direction you want to... Um, We'll see how we build this up. Oh, thank you. Great. So forward. Lovely. Hi there, I'm Catherine Borowski from Skip Gallery. Yes. Oh, yes. I will sit closer. And people at the back, yeah. you really can come forward. There are lots of chairs here. If you can't hear us, please do. There are like six or seven chairs up front. Oh, so I'm Catherine Borowski, part of Baker and Borowski. Um, we created Skip Gallery three years ago, and we're celebrating our third birthday in March. And um, Skip Gallery is kind of just that, except for the fact it isn't a gallery. It is a collaborative artwork um, that can kind of pop up and arrive anywhere around the world. Um, I think um, the thing that inspired Skip Gallery was this idea. Um, actually, the, ins the initial uh, inspiration came from, I suppose, the fact that collectively Catherine and I couldn't get arrested as artists. Um, there was no gallery space we could afford to show in. There was no good gallery space uh, in London that we, that we wanted to showing really that wasn't going to cost us a fortune and, and it's going to be impossible to get people down and blah 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 and Catherine was 
thinking about the freeze coming up and we were wondering how we could invade freeze. Yeah, I was really like, this is absolutely crazy. You've got one weekend each year where the whole of the international art world descends on London or on, you know, one tiny pocket of London. And unless you're either really established, really well connected, well, that's it really. Rich, I was going to say, yeah, posh, you've got no in as an artist. So even to go and, or as a student, even to go and visit Freeze is, I don't know, 36 quid a ticket plus booking fees. And maybe you get a few quid off if you're, a, if you're a student. And that is absolutely ridiculous. So by the time two of you have gone and you've had a coffee, you're spending £100, which is, you know, I don't know, a month's food, mm. you know, potentially. So I really wanted to think about, you know, how to, as Lisa, I like that word invade, how to kind of get in on the action of freeze, but without doing that sort of Banksy swapping in pictures, but doing something um, a bit more... I suppose kind of subvertive. So I thought about I'd be really good to take my work to freeze. What would be the best way of doing it? And so we were talking and we thought, okay, actually if we put a skip outside freeze before the council or the police have even clocked it, we can just move it on. So we kind of loved the idea of sticking in our uh, skip outside, opening it as a gallery or as a, an installation. And that's how skip started so originally it was going to be one um one standalone installation and the more that lee and i talked about it argued argued i mean yeah <laughs> full you know bust up arguments and more about that later um we decided that actually it should be a series of um skip works and we would call it skip gallery and we launched it or well this i think conceptually the idea of skip was that we loved the idea that within a skip is a there's a there's space there's space within that and there are thousands upon thousands of these spaces which are contained by these walls and there's air that could be used um, and it was being wasted and that was really intriguing to us and obviously we had had this freeze idea but in the meantime. Um, Catherine's mum unfortunately died and we decided that knowing Catherine's uh, mum and there's a whole big story around that which I won't go into but she would have really laughed at the idea of us having a funeral in her skip. And the, the skip. Yeah, the reason why we had to have a funeral in a skip for her was she was um, she converted to Islam when I was a child so I grew up in this Islamic household whilst being a white girl. Oh, skip forward, yeah, here we go. And, oh yeah, this is the funeral we had for her. And um, she went, uh, so I think it was February 2016, she went to Mecca to do her pilgrimage, and she was texting me, you know, she was, a, she was Muslim, she wore hijab, she prayed five times a day, but she was fierce, she was a feminist, she was a Londoner, she was, you know, she was a radical, she worked at UCL, you know, through the 80s, she was very political, and she was, a, you know, a devout Muslim, um, and she, but she died, and she died in Mecca. And in Islam, the tradition is that you get buried within 24 hours of dying, so she got buried in Mecca. And so we never went to her funeral, and I've never been to her burial. I've, I don't, you know, I've, I've got handwritten coordinates of her grave, and that became a real sort of starting point. And we chose the first site as Hoxton Square, for the for her funeral and that was a kind of real nod even though Hoxton's in Hackney my mum was from Islington that was a real nod to her kind of Londoner roots we had these horses because we thought she was a bit she was a bit gangster she wasn't at all but she definitely had that you know she would front up to anyone so even when she was in Saudi traveling you know she traveled there for about 15 years on her own as a single woman and you know, no one was messing with her, you know, even the kind of Saudi security services. So um, we love the idea of descending on Hoxton Square with this kind of, love, love um, when Felida was talking about the theatricality, this kind of theatre, if you like, there was a performance inside the skip, um, there were the horses riding around Hoxton Square, and then it was gone. And we, we really enjoyed the fact that these people gathered, had managed to gather by the hundreds around a skip. There was something, you know, really exciting about that. I'll just go back because three years later, 
we were invited uh, to Finsbury Park to, um, we've done lots of shows um, in the street, uh, all over the place. We did one in Milan, which we'll talk about later. And then we were invited to do a skip trail uh, in Finsbury Park. It's an idea we'd had in our, in our heads. Um, but then luckily this space, which was an empty wasted space, um, uh, became free and the people let us um, uh, do this show and we did, we did seven skips. We, we had works, we reused works that we already had that were in storage and we recommissioned works and created this, this piece. This piece actually in the middle uh, here is where I'd reused the spindles from um, an earlier show that Catherine had done um, and unfortunately in the, in the meantime my dad had died so <laughs> I made a piece about him um, used these spindles and actually inside that skip I had a can of coke um, a Mars bar and a block of cheese which was what we threw into his grave um, uh, at his funeral um, so we didn't know anyone, we didn't know any artists, we didn't know what we were going to do next. But in our heads we'd committed to doing, I think it was four shows that first year, so we had planned it, we hired a, an arts PR and we were like, yeah, we're doing this, we were investing our, our last, you know, our money into this, but we didn't know anyone. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I found out off a mate where David Trigley lived and uh, I stuck a letter in his door. <laughs> And it just said, uh, yeah, I've got a gallery and a skip. Uh, will, you, will you do a show? And he said yes. It was mind-blowing, actually, you know. And what I love about this is it's so economical. It's, it just reduces everything down to its bare essentials. And it was, um, there was such a wit about this. And the fact, again, that people were descending on a skip to look inside at a sign that simply says, look at this. And we've been able to we've been able to uh, reuse this in various forms uh, since then. At the show, we had microphones set up on the skip to hear people's reactions because I think very much so, as Felida says, the audience is very much uh, a protagonist in our um, in our shows, and we wanted to bring through skip art to an eye level in the street. Um, bring art to people that wouldn't necessarily, to everyone, to everyone. And this really, this really um, spoke to people, we felt. This you know, we've got photos and, and kind of videos of the bin men going around Hoxton Square and when they kind of looking inside this, because we had invigilators because we thought we're going to do it, we're really going to do it properly. And uh, when they looked in it, they were like properly creasing up. It was, you know, it really made people laugh. Yeah. And that felt really... Um, yeah, that felt, you know, so we kind of were really interested in high production values. So it can be a load of crap and it can be made in a skip. It can be made out of rubbish. But it's got to be done really well. And even if it's rubbish, it's rubbish done well. Um, and also has to, you know, should be able to speak to real people. Speaking of minimalism and, you know, making art that, that just doesn't involve bringing much crap into the world... Um, this was Gavin Turk's piece. Um, he hand painted a uh, hand painted a trompe l'oeil packet of skips crisps and uh, just left it in the skip. Mm -hmm. And um, the work was called Transubstantiation, which is about the transformation of rubbish into art just by sheer virtue of saying so. This was an interesting uh, piece because we. Um, we basically uh, did uh, life drawing classes inside a skip um, as part of art night. And we had, um, eventually, I think we had 100 people come and climb inside a skip and uh, life draw with a proper teacher and everything. And then we left the skip in situ at the John Cass Foundation in um, Aldgate, and we had, which, you know, which is a primary school, and left it in the playground, and we had every single child from that school went inside the skip and joined um, a workshop. So we created this little character called Pixar, which was all about, um, yeah, you know, they, they kind of made art out of recycled and reused materials, and they loved it. So all these children who, you know, when you kind of, especially, you know, we live in such a, you know, a germ-averse society, 
you know, there's a lot of hand sanitizer, especially at the moment going around, but all these kids kind of diving into the skip and drawing, and they, they really loved it. I think what we've, I think it's been an interesting journey actually, because what we've found is that something that didn't start with, um, if you like, environmental credentials, we weren't going out there to explore that, it's gravitated towards us. We and, and helped us to explore mm. the bigger subject matter. Yeah, it was more really a comment on the art world, really, a conversation about the art world and the fact that we there was no way, there was no way in, you know, it was impossible. We were not sort of 20-year-old kids at St Martin's getting lucky and being discovered at a degree show. We graduated, you know, quite a long time ago. <laughs> You're not going to say? Again, just talking about the projects we did, this was very brilliant for us because um, th this really was art out of nothing. We were contacted by um, this amazing guy, Wolfgang, who um, created a football conceptual football team. And it's fully functioning. Everything about it is fully functioning. It, li it lives in Milan. And he asked, he just created this new football kit by an artist called Zhang Li. Um, and uh, he wanted his team to get inside a skip, discover their new kit, and all get in the skip together. This was the performance. Um, and so uh, there are no skips in Milan, uh, so they made us a skip um, at steel. And that's us pushing it onto the truck at the end of the day. So, yeah, so Richard Woods, we'd, we'd been down to um, Folkestone and seen his um, neon sheds on the coast and we loved them and we went out, it was my birthday, we went out for lunch and we were a bit drunk and we're like, oh my God, we'd love him, you know, we'd love Richard to do a skip, let's send him a message on Instagram. We didn't know him, so we did and he replied seconds later saying, yeah, I'd love to do a skip with you and so um, we kind of worked with him. Lee went and did a studio visit and this is Upgrade, so this is kind of talking about the gentrification of the area of Hoxton. So this was located in Hoxton Square. And this was quite funny because we started off, say on day one we had some prop rubbish, so there was a you know, farrow, quite tasteful farrow and ball um, paint pot. There were you know bits that Richard had brought from his studio and then by the second day the rubbish just started piling up, piling up, piling up. In the end, someone else, someone dumped a Wendy house in there, so it's kind of started getting this life of its own and people, you know, doing interventions. But meanwhile, we were like sticking on these marigolds and like, disgusting, like clearing, and they're like clearing all this gross rubbish. And one, you know, the first Saturday that it opened, I got um, a phone call and uh, so I answered the phone and she said, um, this is environmental health from Hackney. I was like, oh, hi. She said, you got a skip in Hoxton. I was like, yeah. And she said, you've stuck a pink house in there and they're never going to take it away. You've overfilled your skip. <laughs> and I was... Well, I, and, no, <laughs> I said, oh, thank you so much for calling, but it's actually, it's actually art. <laughs> <laughs> and it did, it did get a life of its own. It literally grew and sank, grew and sank. You'd take the rubbish away and then it would come back again. And that in itself became this kind of, you know, this temporal... Piece of art yeah, because you know, in London, you see a skip, you dump stuff in it. You're, you're either in there getting something, precisely. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's the other thing with skips is everyone has got, you know, a memory of either being in a skip, taking something from, or kind of mm -hmm. secretly flinging it, flinging a bit of rubbish in. And there. it's worth bearing in mind, I suppose, that it, the thing that inspired us was uh, we were up in Manchester um, to, to their big art gallery, which I can't remember, but there was a skip down the side of there, which just looked particularly sculptural and beautiful to us. We'd been to the Chelsea, uh, uh, I think it was the MA show, and we walked around the back, and the skip was just filled with the most incredible art. I mean, it was <laughs> junk. Well, to them it was junk, to us it was an artwork. You know, we were like, my God, that is art there. We've just been around all these degree shows, there is art. And it's got to be said, you know, when in 2014, when we went to the Tate Britain, and I, I, much to, you know, I, I didn't know about Felida's work uh, before then. I stepped in and I, I, I was absolutely, my jaw hit the floor. I felt like I, I was walking through heaven, really. Um, and that, I think all these things have added up over the years as catalysts towards, and we went to the Venice show to see Felida's work as well. Um, and these have acted as catalysts, people who have helped us to understand 
what it is to make to make art out of out of seeming detritus. Paul Kindersley is a really interesting character. Um, he everything in his work has been found in a skip. He goes to the point where he doesn't touch the work. He doesn't even cut stuff he's found in the skip. He doesn't even, you know, rework it. He just sews it together and paints it. And all his pieces are performative. Yeah, so all the wigs have got seaweed and muck and wood and, you know, banana skins. But he's, you know, he really kind of stands by that and creates... So we... Um, I mean, his performances must have their inoculations up to date because there's some serious, <laughs> like... We did this, um, we got, so last year we got um, invited by Selfridges to do uh, a skip inside there. First of all, it was going to be on their new Duke Street entrance, but when um, Westminster Council got phoned, we, we were told uh, it's not uh, April Fool's Day. So then somehow they managed to um, allow us to do the skip inside. And so we did Ship of Fools, which was a performance and installation piece with found objects. You better hurry we, Yeah. This is um, when we uh, turned a changing room into a art gallery space, another space which is completely opposite of what it was meant for. Um, uh, we worked with Claire Pierce from, uh, from also the Slade. from the Slade, yeah. yeah. This is who we're going to be working with this year, Michael Johansson. Um, you know, we absolutely again in the spirit of that he makes seemingly found objects. Some are found and some are uh, bought, but he, he develops them into these beautiful pieces. And this is what we're doing this year, skip the skip binali. Uh, <laughs> so we really want to do an open call. So, you know, skip is meant to be really democratic and for everyone. All you need is a skip and you need to work with it. So it could be that you don't even hire your own skip. You find the skip that's on your street corner and you do an intervention with it. So we're working on our ideas for that to do an open call for that later this year. I love the idea of, of it just being like uh, happening in one go, all the skips in the UK being taken over. <laughs> do you require people to then photograph what they've done with the skip yeah. and then do, send yeah. you the yeah. photographs? Yeah. So it's yeah. Instagrammable. Exactly. Yes. So the whole thing is going to re really, actually, the whole thing will exist online. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Sorry Thank for, you. Sorry for your yeah. yeah. over talk. Oh, yeah, to Hillary. Oh, do you want to swap? Should we swap places? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, I was just struck listening to you uh, both and then thinking um, after Philida the way in which the, the, the sort of whole aesthetic of waste and the use of waste has now become so harnessed to the environmentalist project and whether that was there or not in the inception it now becomes seen through that filter so it, yeah. which is very interesting the, the discourse around mm. it has so shifted in the last few years yes. yeah. and, the, and the invitations that start happening as a result of that, yeah, 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 absolutely. If you'd use discarded buses, it might be different than skips because skips have got that very particular set of connotations. Over to you. Well, thank you. Um, which one is which? I've kind of turned up with a surprise presentation that I don't even know myself. It was a, a <laughs> I failed in this respect. So the presentation that I've got is actually one that I think I took to. Bergen to do a workshop on breaking and waste. So I'm hoping the images will be relevant, but I think for now I'll click through them at the end and just respond through word because otherwise they'll be disjointed. So yeah, I kind of love the way that your work kind of ignores the canon of steel and bronze and you know these materials that are traditionally associated with sculpture and value and places value on, you know, a different a different kind of inverse value criteria on the, the material you use. And that kind of links in with a lot of work that I've been doing really based on the demolition site. It's kind of become my home over the last kind of decades as a site where I can really explore the value of places and materials and how that kind of idea of value is dictated in the metal exchange in the centre of London, the traders who are buying and selling metal on those floors shouting out the price of copper and zinc have an impact on well artists but also people who are struggling to survive collecting the scrap metals off the streets from the back of fridges mm. and how those prices fluctuate so these kind of global trends and stories how they're so linked to these very physical materials that we kind of take for granted and particularly on a demolition site how there's such although at first it might appear chaos 
there's such a meticulous process of sorting and valuing and ordering these materials. So that really inspired me when I've spent time on demolition sites in East London, kind of getting in there as um, an official artist in residence, kind of through security guards and up through the chain of command until I got to drive diggers and things. But just watching how they're this kind of meticulous sorting. So there's a, there's a place for everything, that London brick stock are worth, like, I don't know, £1.34 each, so they're stacked up, ready to go. But that value that's placed on them is financial, and it's back into this kind of global supply system. So I began to think, how could I kind of intervene in that and place value on these materials in my own way, taking out of that kind of supply and demand and economics and placing a more creative value on them. So on demolitions like that involved kind of building an urban palette, like using bricks to make ink, um, kind of questioning how we value the traditional materials of art making as well. So thinking, well, why do we use specific stone from a quarry in Bavaria for, um, uh, what's it called, stone lithography? Probably very good reasons, it's the best stone, but then could that also work on the paving stones that are kind of smashed up on the ground. So starting this whole process of experiments in how to work with these materials, particularly with roofing zinc. And that's been a kind of key material that I've worked with, taking this metal that sits up high above the city on the rooftops and then using it as a, as a base for etching, this kind of form of printmaking, which in itself is a kind of entropic process because while you etch into the metal, you're eating away at it and how it doesn't behave like the materials that you should be using for zinc. So when you normally do printmaking, you have very nice, smooth, shiny zinc or copper. It behaves how you want it if you know the kind of chemistry. When you take it down from a rooftop, it doesn't behave how you want it at all. So it becomes a collaboration with these kind of waste materials. So I spent a lot of time, and that this was through, um, based at UCL in the Bartlett, but also in the chemistry department, realising that my art making needed to collaborate with other professions from material scientists to specifically demolition workers and how there's this innate and learnt knowledge of materials that comes from the time on the site. So outputs of that are etchings, kind of tests with stone, um, a kind of ink palette, and also, um, I've got it around the back, a book of stories, kind of starting that process of thinking, where do all these materials that we consider waste come from? They start, and, and how political those stories are. Mm -hmm. So starting in kind of my exploitative, extractive mines in, in places where human rights <laughs> are abused, how they travel the oceans, like how they're used, reused, recycled, the ship, you know, these container journeys that travel around the world. So that's been a preoccupation. And I really love a quote by um, Agnes Varda in The Gleaners and I, which is like mm -hmm. a just like kind of live by her, yeah. her work there. We screened that actually as part of oh, our programme on waste and yeah. we had a panel on it, so that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I was thinking in, in relation to your work as well, this where she, her quote, um, where others see clusters of junk, I see clusters of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And the way she does that is, um, you know, it was with film, so she even uses waste footage, like when there's a shot where the camera lens is just swinging methodically in the stop. It's an accident, but then she makes that into a jazz dance. And how that she says about heart-shaped potatoes, they find their way into her life and her film because they're calling out to her. They need to be there. So there's this, this kind of idea of care that you kind of talk about in some of the ways you work with materials. But then I also like, there's this quote that I've, maybe is not true, but apparently Richard Wentworth said about you, um, this bish-bash-bosh, attitude I don't know but that, that this idea that it's a careless way of working with materials that was meant as a compliment I think but that really there's this great care yeah it's not it's not an insult that um and there's a collaboration with these materials because after all we're made of lots of the same things as these materials so yeah the demolition site has been a theme and then I've kind of taken to always working with spaces that are also discarded from um kind of buildings that are due for demolition which is this one. Oh, so yeah, so this is a good image. This is um, a building in White City, the former BBC offices, that there was an invitation to come in and take it over before it was demolished. So I wanted to kind of always try to share in these processes of salvage and, and the destruction that often goes into creative acts, and this was particularly cathartic, getting a, a 
playground based in White City, an adventure playground group to come in and help me smash up the BBC. <laughs> and the health and safety aside, it was like, it was amazing really. And to combine that with, oh, how do I do this? Just on the right. This one. Yeah, and so within that project, I was kind of telling a new story of the BBC Tower. It was based on the fact that in that BBC building, they used to be the home of children's television. And it was it, some of the detritus that was left behind was a poster that was of Jack and Ori, which was one of their kind of signature programmes, which involved a famous people person telling a classic story. So instead of a famous person, I kind of invited about 30 local people in to sit in this story chair as the building was demolished around them. And the story they were reading also had connections to these themes of waste and redemption and destruction, because I chose Ted Hughes' The Iron Man, so the building was almost like an embodiment of The Iron Man and its journey as it fell to pieces. And the last voice was Ted Hughes' voice from the grave echoing around now the empty site after the building had been demolished. And so, yeah, I've kind of followed waste where it drifts, which ends up being um, on the edge of London. This was, I was kind of determined to get a um, studio award through Acme Studios that was based in Purfleet, right on the edge of London. That's the M25 crossing the bridge where London meets Essex. And it's also a place where London kind of spits out all of its waste, either like you see it washing up on the Thames, it's where its industry has gone. It's where in the old days, reading um, Ian Sinclair's book, London Orbital, where asylums were put, where, where unwanted people and things were, were placed. And I had this idea that I wanted to kind of make a salvaged opera of the place based on Wagner's ring cycle. So that was kind of a hard one to persuade local people to get involved with, but actually it happened. And it was kind of a reading of that classic kind of opera, epic opera, as a critique of you know, the rampage in industrial capitalism, but playing out among this landscape and collaborating with the people there, the places there, but also the, the materials, the kind of detritus there. So those trolleys um, became, and all of that junk in there became a Foley sound studio and a kind of junk orchestra of sorts played by a team of local people in front of the finished film, which was shot in that area. And I don't know if I've got a, oh yeah, so trolleys were, a, the ride of the Valkyries, that kind of classic, <laughs> do, 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 didn't have that sound on it, but they, they were pushing trolleys through this, this landscape. So this kind of playful use of these materials and consumer symbols that get um, just dumped around the place. And so I have a collection of trolleys. And this was the king of the gods, Wotan, looking out across his kingdom. And the Rhine, oh no, these are the Thames maidens instead of the Rhine maidens. <laughs> so kind of playing with, all, with that landscape and involving a big community in it. See, I don't even know. I think this is kind of relevant because I've done lots of work around the Olympics. Like, oh yeah, so that kind of started early on with questioning the values we place on spaces. So when the Olympic arrived in London, it was this idea that this was a dirty area that was just ripe for regeneration. There was nothing there. And, you know, when really there were studios full of artists, businesses that were operating. So this was a kind of intervention in that dominant narrative that was put out by all the press, that really there was plenty there, and really this was a kind of a provocation and a DIY guerrilla Olympics that took place before the Olympics happened. So over kind of two weekends, I shot this film where we basically staged mini Olympics among the sites as they were changing, using all of that iconography of the Olympics, but setting it in the real space as a kind of swan song to the area that would be totally unrecognisable over the last years. So that, that was the day before the Olympic site closed down. So yeah, I, don't, I might stop the images. Oh, <laughs> but there is a pop-up book. So this is a pop-up book that pops up. All of the things that have been um, destroyed in that area come back to life again in the form of a pop-up, which actually uses all of the etchings made from the zinc from the rooftops. So there's this kind of recycling of methods and processes. Oh, yeah. that was a <laughs> whistle stop. Whistle stop. Thank you. <laughs>